So today let's talk a little bit about the Parsha. Um, and uh, Parsha's Pinchas, of course, this week. And also just a little bit talk about uh, a little bit about the building of the base Hamikdash. You know the uh, three weeks are between Shivasar Batamuz and uh, Tishabov. Uh, this year, actually, because it's Shabbos, so we start from Sunday, the 18th of Tammuz. Those are the three weeks. The three weeks have the special laws, which we don't make any weddings, we don't take haircuts, we don't do uh, things of joy. So and nothing changes for me. What? So nothing changes for me. <laughs> Aww. Right. I still need so a haircut. Anyway. But that's precisely because Luke we're in the morning, morning. Because it's the days of morning. So, right. so we have those... Um, those restrictions in the three weeks. So, but it's very interesting. The Rebbe always, in his own unique way, he finds the positive spin uh, to do everything in a positive way. Uh, many times, you know, many times, people, when they feel bad about a certain situation, so at the end of the day, it actually makes them feel good. They're feeling good that they're feeling bad. What do, what do I mean? Mm-hmm. Say, like, you have uh, a poor person over there, and uh, so when you feel bad for the poor person, oh, then it makes you feel good. You say to yourself, oh, I'm a sensitive person. You know, I feel bad for people that are unfortunate. Now, the question is, what do you do about it? Do you do about it, or you just move on, and you're just uh, happy with what you... You feel bad. You know, mostly the laws of mourning involve feeling bad, crying, and uh, not doing, enjoying. But the Rebbe says we should utilize these times to actually do something for the building of the Beis HaMikdash. So not just cry for the lost, but just try to do something to bring about the Beis HaMikdash. Just for an example for that, you know, Rebbe in one of his talks talks about the fact that um, you find when Yosef met up with Binyamin uh, after uh, Yosef forced his brothers to bring Binyamin and then they meet each other. So it says that they fell on each other's uh, neck. They fell. That's Yaakov and Yosef, isn't it? Also, Yaakov and Yosef also separately. But Binyamin, also Binyamin and Yosef, and then later on, because first it was Yosef and Binyamin, then later on Yaakov was brought down, but originally it was Yosef and Binyamin. So there it says that they both fell on each other's neck, and they cried. So, literally, you say they cried because they missed each other, they, they was a get-together, so now they're very uh, emotional about it, so they cried. But Rashi brings down, no, that there was a very hidden, they cried about something which they saw. So it says that you know, the uh, permanent Beis Amikdosh in Yerushalayim was actually on the portion of Binyamin. So while the whole area is from the tribe of Yehuda, Yerushalayim itself, Jerusalem, is of the portion of Yehuda, but there was a strip that went and was for Binyamin. So what Yosef was crying for because he, he noticed that the Beis Hamikdash on Binyamin's territory, which is going to be, is going to be destroyed. So he became very upset about it and he cried for him. Now, before the Beis Hamikdash was built in Jerusalem, uh, from the time, it took about more than 450 years from the time they crossed over into Israel, they crossed the Jordan River into, first they conquered Jericho, Yericho, and then they went later on, so uh, it took 450 years more until the Beis HaMikdash was built. Is that Shiloh? In the, in the meantime, there was the Mishkan Shiloh that was on the way. Mishkan Shiloh was also stood for about 400 years, and then they had Noiv and Given, and it, it was uh, evolved, you know, first they had a structure, they had the covering still from the Mishkan, and then eventually they built the full Beis Amikdosh. That, the Shiloh, is in the section of Yosef. So Binyamin realized the destruction of the temple in the section of Yosef. 
So he cried for the destruction of the temple of Yosef. So, so the uh, really, uh, you know, the, the question is okay. You know, it's uh, it's interesting that people felt bad for the destruction of the of the of the sanctuary, but why did each one cry for the sanctuary that was in the other person's portion? So, shouldn't Yosef uh, cry for his own Beis Hamikdash that is going to be in his section? Shouldn't Binyamin cry for the Beis Hamikdash that is in his own section? Why did they cry for the Beis Hamikdash that was in the other one's section? So it seems like odd that, notwithstanding the fact that you care about another person, but you should certainly care about yourself, about your own Beis Hamikdash. And the Rebbe brings a very interesting point. So the Rebbe says <laughs> about your Beis Hamikdash. You shouldn't really cry. You should do something about it. If it's in your portion, uh, somebody else's base amigdosh, somebody else's over there, you can't do anything about it. It's not your portion. So you feel bad for the person you cry, but just crying for something isn't going to lead you to action. Same thing is, you know, if you want to use this in, in, in life, you know, sometimes people have problems. You know, they have problems. They have real problems. And so... You can cry about it, you can complain about it, you know, you can quetch about it, and you can blame everybody for your problems. But the bottom line is, if it's your problem, don't just complain about it. Try to do something about it and try to remedy it, because it's your problem. You have the ability to, in most cases, I'm not saying in all cases, but in most cases, find something within yourself. Don't just cry for it, but do something about it. On the other hand, if you bump into another person and you see the other one has tzuras, and you know you can't, you can't. The other one has to help themselves to get themselves out, and you, but you feel bad for them, so then you cry. So that's why Yosef cries for Benjamin, Benjamin cries for Yosef, but they don't cry for themselves because themselves they have to try to build. You have to try to build your own, your own structure, your own base amigdos. You have to work hard for it. And, and the Rebbe says, that's why also the Rebbe says that just to cry for the destruction of the temple and, you know, just say, okay, the man of God, well, we feel bad about it. Uh, that's not the uh, ultimate uh, goal. The goal is to help build the Beis HaMikdash. The Rebbe says, how do we build the Beis HaMikdash? So what do we do? So we say we have to do something about it. So of course, the Rebbe wants to utilize every matter for bringing people closer to Hashem, for learning more Torah, doing more mitzvahs, and also strengthening our trust in Hashem that He will rebuild the Beis HaMikdash and that we will merit it, that even though even though He's delaying, but I wait for Mashiach every day, and we hope that He'll come and build us the Beis HaMikdash every day. So we have to generate in ourselves that trust in Hashem. And, um, and therefore, it's important that Rebbe wants us to learn, study the stuff about, uh, whether it's the Rambam, about the laws of how the laws of the Temple, even though it's unique about the Rambam, that's Maimonides, uh, in the code of Jewish law, they basically only write uh, laws that are applicable in nowadays. So you'll have the laws for Shabbat, you'll have the laws for holidays, you have the laws of marriage, you'll have the laws that apply presently. Uh, those were the laws that were mostly sort of uh, expounded upon. They, 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 they delved into that and they came up with all various different rulings. But the laws for the temple, that's not an applicable law right now. So in most of the codifiers, you're not going to find the laws about, like, you know, what really, what difference does it make? It doesn't make a difference because it's not present right now. But Maimonides is the exception. The Maimonides, he wrote his code of law, he called it the Mishneh Torah. He called it like the second to the Torah. Basically, the purpose of his book, book it's 14 books, 14 large books, and uh, covers all of the Torah. He says that after you learn the written Torah, you can go straight to his Sefer, 
And he has already gathered and collected and put in all the rest of the Torah in his books. So he writes all the laws. So he has a section which is called the Hilchas Beis HaBechira, the laws of the chosen house, which is the Beis HaMegdosh. So that's what we studied a little bit during the three weeks. And, and the Rebbe points out that um, when we study the laws, there brings evidence to that, but when we study the laws of the Beis HaMikdash, we're actually in a certain level building the Beis HaMikdash. We're, we're actually, that's our contribution to right now, under the circumstances, as we say, what could we do? Well, we can build the Beis HaMikdash. How? By studying not only the Beis HaMikdash, we learn in the Mishnah, we learn in the Pasuk, there's various different verses that talk about the measurements of the Beis HaMikdash, Mesechus Midas, and you have in the Prophet uh, brings down the various different measurements. So there's a lot of things to learn about the Beis HaMikdash. And the most important thing is to create that belief and that trust in Hashem that He will build us back the Beis HaMikdash. And not just to be satisfied, oh, okay, you know, I cried, and okay, so I'm done. That you need to do something. Yeah, what are you going to say? Why do we need the Beis HaMikdash rebuilt? Why do we need the general? Okay, that's a good question. That was actually a topic that we did, believe that we discussed last year on this uh, Torah and Torah, the Torah uh, That was a topic we discussed. But, uh, okay, I was going to leave a little later, but just there is two main purposes for the uh, Beis HaMikdash. There's two purposes. One purpose is that... Um, God wants a presence in this world, which means that God, by definition, is spiritual, is holy, is above, is not um, manifest itself in the physical world. But Hashem wants an exception. He wants to have one place where that's going to be His presence. And that was the Beis HaMikdash, uh, or the Mishkan, where the Hashem says, Make for me a sanctuary so that I can rest amongst you. So the purpose is Hashem wants to rest amongst the Bnei Israel. He wants His presence in this world. Now, the presence that was felt in the Beit HaMikdash was unusual for any other place because over there, there was the miracles, the divine presence in the Kodesh HaKadosh, the holiest of holiest, where only the uh, Kohen Gadol was allowed to go in once a year on Yom Kippur. So, and that where the voice would come to Moshe. So there was a manifestation of the spiritual divine presence in the physical inside of the Bet HaMikdash. So the one purpose of the Bet HaMikdash is to have a divine presence. Unfortunately, once the Beit HaMikdash is no longer here, we have sort of a miniature substitute for the Beit HaMikdash, and that would be a shul, a Beit HaKnesset. That would be a place where God's presence, and that's why, you know, even if we pray without a minion, it says better to pray in the shul, because the shul is a holy place. That's where the divine is more uh, revealed, and it's easier for your prayers to be accepted upon high. So therefore, one needs to daven, or best place to daven is in a shul. So that's something that we have today because we don't have the physical Beis HaMikdash. There's another purpose of the Beis HaMikdash, was there was a place where they would offer, they do the services in the Beis HaMikdash. The most uh, prominent service was the service of the Korbanot, was the sacrifices. Now, while some people look at it, the literal, the physical taking of an animal and slaughtering of it, but it has a very strong spiritual significance. So in all of our prayers, we're always saying, oh, build us the Beis HaMikdash so we can do the Korbanot, so build us the Beis HaMikdash so we can do our services there. That is considered to be a tremendous uh, level of uh, service to Hashem. The way it worked originally, I mean, later on it was lost, the way it worked originally, actually, as we see in the Chumash, in the Torah portion, a few uh, parshas ago, I mean, actually in the previous Chumash, in Vayikra, over there it says that uh, a fire came out from the heavens that consumed 
the Korbanot, the first time they brought the Korbanot on the Mizbeach, uh, it was consumed by a fire, and there was a constant fire that came from above. That was a fire that consumed the, uh, the Korban, the physical Korban over there, and elevated it. And we say about the Korban, we say, that's in a pleasant aroma before Hashem. Hashem is very pleased with the as all the explanations, but there's a lot of mystical and a lot of insight on the uh, Kabbalistic levels over there to really understand. It's a lot more than the physical taking of an animal. And the, the very literal level is that uh, it's similar to what happened to uh, Isaac, that you know when there was father was going to take him as an offering and he substituted uh, the Ayel, the Ram, took his place. So we're almost saying, Hashem, we're bringing you ourselves as a Korban. Korban means to get close to ourselves. We want to be consumed in the fire up above and to not kill ourselves, but to uh, be included, to be uh, part. So that's part of the, another reason of the uh, of the building of the Beisabek. There, there should be a place not only the Korbanot, the Korbanot, the lighting of the menorah, which was a constant miracle all the time. There was the showbread, the lechem aponim, that they placed on the shulchan. There was the ketores, the incense that they brought every day. Then, of course, on Yom Kippur, we had the many more services. And, you know, each individual, if you did a sin, then you would bring a korban to Hashem for forgiveness, and etc., etc. And, um, so that's the second group. So actually, there is a, uh, a debate between some of the codified Rambam, uh, which seems to be what is the most important part of the temple. I mean, you ask the question, what is the most important part? The Rambam seems to say in the very beginning of the uh, of the Beis HaMechira, he seems to say that the purpose of the, why did Hashem want us to have a Beis HaMechira? So we have a place were to bring the korbanot, that we should bring the sacrifices over there. That's the purpose. You see, there is a question. You know, we know that there is 613 mitzvot, 613. Uh, we learn it out from the, the different psukim, uh, when the Gemara brings down that there are 613 mitzvot. Now it becomes a big to-do, what exactly are the 613 mitzvot? So we divide them into two categories. One of them are the positive, and then we have the prohibitions. So you have 248 positive mitzvahs, so you have 365 uh, prohibitions. Now, what exactly are the 248 positive mitzvahs? What are they? So over there, again, there is a big disagreement between the codifiers, and there is various different uh, authorities, authors, who... Uh, who deal with uh, bringing, counting the number of the mitzvot. Rambam is one of them. He has a book called the Sefer HaMitzvot, which we studied the entire book of the Sefer HaMitzvot. The Rambam, Yara Chazok, is based on the mitzvot. So there's also. So the question is, how many mitzvahs is the building of the Beit HaMikdash? So we find one mitzvah. It says, Vasuli Mikdash, make for me a sanctuary. And then I will dwell amongst you. So that's a mitzvah to make a sanctuary. But what about, but then as you read the verses over there, the Parshish Truma, Tetzavik, Isisa, the verse keeps on telling you, oh, you shall make a aron, make a ark. Uh, uh, then it says you should make a shulchan, you should make a menorah, you should make... Are these separate mitzvot? Or... These are, in other words, in the number of the 248 mitzvahs we say that we have positive mitzvahs, are we, we going to count them, each one, as separate mitzvot? Or are they really all one mitzvah? Then we're going to have to substitute their numbers. That's why we have to sit and figure out exactly which of the mitzvahs is part of 248. The Rambam says no. The Rambam says that those mitzvahs are not counted. All the individual mitzvahs to make the curtain, to make the cover, to make the... The, the beams to make the, the menorah to make, the, 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 they don't count uh, separately. You have one mitzvah, make for me a sanctuary, and those are just details, details of, a, of, of the mitzvah itself. It's part of that same mitzvah, and it's just a mitzvah itself. And therefore, 
He says that we don't count him. As Rabbi explains, because this goes along with his view that the main purpose is to build a base amigdash in which you can bring korbanot. Now, in order to bring the korbanot, in order to do the service, whatever it is, you need all these. You need all these various different utensils that you need the different uh, kalim, these different vessels that the Beis Mishkan had in order to do the service. And that the purpose of the Beis HaMikdash is for service. So it doesn't make any sense to make a separate mitzvah. That, that is the mitzvah of the Beis HaMikdash. That's his view. But the Rambam, he says no. He says, uh, he first of all, he brings evidence against the Rambam. He says that what happens, let's say, if you don't have a menorah in the Beit HaMikdash or you don't have the table in the Beit HaMikdash? Does that disqualify? We can't bring a korbanot because of that? No, it doesn't. You know, the dalacha is, you could. It's, these are, he said, he argues they're independent pieces. They're not part of the same piece. Uh, according to the, the Rambam, the Rambam is also of the view that the main purpose of the sanctuary was for the divine presence to be amongst the Jewish people. So that's a separate, you know, that's a separate context than all the other mitzvahs. They're not included together. These are two separate. Every separate uh, service in the Beis HaMikdash had its function, but that's not why the whole Beis HaMikdash was built. Asuli Mikdash v'shechanti besocham, that represents just building the whole Beis HaMikdash, the whole thing. So that's the, the Beis HaMikdash, but the, each individual piece, that's something which, um, which has its own mitzvah. But yet, so, so basically, they follow their views. The Rambam, the Rambam holds that the main function of the Beis HaMikdash is to bring Korbanot to do the service so according to him, it's all one mitzvah because it's all part of doing the service. That's what the Beis HaMikdash is for. According to him, the Beis HaMikdash has this very specific goal. Uh, goal is to do the avoida, to do the service. And therefore, it's all part of the same mitzvah. According to Ramban, that's Nachmanides, he holds that the main function of the Beis HaMikdash is the presence of the divine to be there. And therefore, the services are all separate mitzvahs. They're not part of the same mitzvah. But yet, not to confuse you further, yet he also agrees in the... and He also agrees that we're not going to count each one of these vessels for a mitzvah, but for another reason. He says the building of the mitzvah, just like, for example, we'll give, just give an example, like when we built a sukkah. Now, we don't make, according to at least the most, uh, some actually there's an opinion that you do, but according to most opinion, we're not going to make a bracha for a sukkah. Why? Because the mitzvah is to eat in the sukkah. Now, how are you going to eat in the sukkah? You need to build a sukkah to eat in the, the sukkah. So, it's called a heksher mitzvah. It prepares the mitzvah. Sometimes you do something, so you prepare for the mitzvah. Everything, every mitzvah we do, Whatever we're going to do, we have to prepare it. So we're going to light the Shabbos candle. The mitzvah is the lighting of the Shabbos candle. But what are we going to say? Putting together the the, the, the wick and the candle, that's going to be the mitzvah? No, that's not the mitzvah. The mitzvah is... So, if the Torah told you to do that, then also it still wouldn't be a mitzvah because over there, as Raramban explains, the goal is to do the mitzvah with it. So... When you shake the lulav, for example, or you blow the shofar, that's the mitzvah. But cutting the shofar off the horn of the ram, or preparing it and bringing it, or everything else that involves, you know, I mean, uh, eating the cholent and Shabbos is the mitzvah. Cooking it, you know, I mean, if you want to have, if you want to enjoy the Shabbos meal, you have to cook it. That's called the preparation. That's called the prep work. But after the prep work comes the actual mitzvah. So he argues. The Ramban argues, he says, that when you <coughs> built a menorah, it's not for the goal of the menorah itself. There's no point in putting a menorah. The menorah is to light it. So the mitzvah is the lighting of the menorah. The menorah is just placed in there so that you can, it prepares you, it helps you do the mitzvah. So he says, we're not going to 
account the structure, the building of these kalim, of these verses, as a mitzvah. He agrees with the Rambam that we're not going to count them as part of the 248 mitzvah, but he gives it for a different reason. He just says that the goal is not the building of that of that vessel. The goal is um, the doing of the mitzvah. But the Rambam, on the other hand, he holds that it's all part of the same mitzvah. Now, what is the Rambam going to answer to the argument of the Ramban that we can still, if it's all part of, if it's all part of the same structure? So how could we bring a carbon if we're missing vessels? So you know, the Rebbe explains. So once you built it, you made it prepared. And if it's missing, so you do the best you can. You know, I guess if your if your stove is not working, so you're gonna use something else to substitute it, or to do what you can. So it doesn't mean just because it's okay uh, that it can be done without it. It doesn't mean necessarily that it's not part of it. It could be part of it. Part of the building of the Mesa Migdash is all the different vessels. If it's not there, it's not there. Okay, yeah, go ahead. See what you started with. You want a question over there. You know, mm-hmm. We've been. Uh, so yeah. I see a little divergence. Yeah. Hashem is going to bring the Mishkan. How is it also our mitzvah to know the dimensions? To uh, how do you uh, you say it authoritatively that Hashem is going to bring the Mishkan? Where do you take well, that from? That's what you said. That what Hashem is going to build? What do you mean? He's yeah, going to bring. bring the third temple. Yeah. So that's a, that's a whole debate. I'm just yeah, saying it's not so bad. Because it says, we say it in the davening, it says, Mishkan Hashem, Mishkan, and they say it in the davening, there's Yoshir. It says, Mishkan Adnai Koyinu Yodecha. It says, Hashem's hands will, 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 will make it. Mm-hmm. But we all know that the Melech HaMashiach, the Ramam rules that Melech HaMashiach will build the base of Mikdash. So the question is, how will we reconcile? Yeah. It says that the base of Mikdash, a fire will come down or it's going to be built. It's going to be a participation in both. We oh. still have to build the base of Mikdash. Oh. It still, still requires our work. Because it makes it sound like it's going to come down ready made. Uh, to a certain extent. That's, that's something that's dealt with. To a certain extent, some of it is going to come ready made, but we're still going to have to build it. It's still our building. But if you look into Maimonides, you'll see, and again, you know, various different midrashim that you have different expounding uh, interpretations. Uh, they're not necessarily always halachically. Halacha is one that ruling. So we have to look a lot of times to Maimonides to see what is going to take place, to see in the halacha. What is the halacha? The Rambam says the Melech HaMashiach will build the Beis HaMikdash. So it's definitely going to have to build it. And we're, gonna, we're helping him build it. Now, of course you understand that even though we're saying that we're actually building the Beis HaMikdash, we're not having bricks and mortar over here. I mean, we're still... That would fit in actually with the Beis Hamikdash coming from Hashem. Hashem's Beis Hamikdash that you're talking about that is going to come down from that He created is built by us. We're building it. We're helping it. That's the Beis Hamikdash. So that actually does fit in. It's not a question. That actually fits in with what we were talking about before. That what we're learning, we're building some of those bricks that Hashem will bring down. But yet, but just to answer your question directly. It's going to be both involvement. It's going to be involvement side by Hashem and side by the people. But that's something else. That's a whole other discussion. But yeah. you do the yeah. people in Israel that are building the golden menorah from one piece. That they're readying. Well, either they're or they want to show a sample, or they want to. I mean, that's also some uh, some debate about you know exactly uh, know whether you could or could you should you shouldn't but that's another uh, that's another old debate I had today a, um, a very uh, a very serious question about somebody's somebody uh, very bad shape you know question is how do you deal we shouldn't know in such a situation you know what are you allowed to not allowed to do you know in the you know, about, you know, prolonging the person's life and suffering or not, you know, or how do you deal with that? It's a, it's a very detailed, I'm no expert in any uh, stretch of the imagination in that field. So, but the question, you know, I had a long discussion with a religious doctor about it. And, uh, and I told him at the end, I said, look, I'm not an uh, expert in that field and I can't really voice an opinion. I said, I hate to be a party to ending somebody's life, <laughs> being part of murder. On the same hand, I don't want to be a party to, uh, uh, you know, extending somebody's suffering in, in this world. I don't want to do that either. I mean, uh, so I said, 
I respectfully let somebody more knowledgeable than me to make these rulings. But I said, but I, my feeling is, I just have a sense, a good sense of what's right and wrong. You know, or I know enough about to know. What I'm ruling about it is, I say there are people that are gonna tell you that you're absolutely not allowed to do anything and touch, do anything, and whatever it takes. It's Hashem. You know, we have to. It's not our. It's not our decision to make decision. Let Hashem make those decisions. Even though we're making a decision to prolong the life, but we we, we don't know. We don't know. We can't say that we're gonna take away life. And there is others that are going to say, no, you absolutely have to help the person because what's the point in, in doing that? That you're torturing a person, you're not supposed to. It's, 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 it's not an easy uh, decision and not an easy, not only according to halacha, certainly halacha. Morally, you know, people, you know, we're what point, you know, there's always. Uh, the, but I said, you know, I said, there's people going to rule one way and people are going to rule the other way. I know that for sure. The only question is, which way you choose to rule like, because there's going to be, there's, there's opinions on both, on every extreme, on every side. Um, forget why I was saying this. Uh, my brother said for something. But in any event, um, uh, I don't remember what I, what I was saying this for. No, because there are two opinions about, perhaps, what to do with the Mishkan. Uh, how the Mishkan is going to build, yeah, but then. Uh, in any event, oh, no, I was saying, so in, in, in halacha, there can only be only one ruling. So there can be ideas. The Mashiach is going to be like his. What's going to come? Like it says that Mashiach is going to come on the cloud. And then it says he's going to come on a donkey. Mm-hmm. So how do we uh, reconcile it? The cloud of donkey. So it says, if we're going to be meritorious and we're going to, Mashiach is going to come from uh, our good deeds, then he's going to come on the cloud. But if Mashiach is going to have to come because there's no choice, because... Time is there, then it'll come out of donkey. <laughs> you know? What about a donkey-shaped cloud? <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. Like a solution. Like a solution. But uh, the, the donkey will have to fly. So that's not going to be a donkey, it's going to be a cloud. Okay, it's it's going to be a cloud. But a in cloud the shape, we don't care how we come. Just that, yeah. You know, uh, Rebbe, Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson, didn't like the term tarry. Tarry? Yeah. Tarry, like that slow, like, yeah. Uh, to slow, yeah. In, like, yeah. I mean, because that was, uh, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. Even though, like, Afapishi is Mamea, even though he tarries, so he yeah, didn't like the word tarry. Yeah, he's not tarrying. Yeah. Okay. Why? Yeah. Because he's on don't... his way. He's, he could be here any minute, you know. He's... Mm. Yeah. But the, you know, I'm not sure exactly why you, you know, why they're saying that in the book yeah. that you're reading. Yeah. But this is actually in, the, right in the sitter, I mean, for those who say it, in the and Animami, and it says, Afapishi is Mamea. What does Ismahameya mean? Ismahameya means Terry. Yeah. So I don't know exactly, you know, in what context, you know, uh, uh, the, maybe the Rebbe didn't want to emphasize it or something like that, but, yeah. you know, he says he's going to come right away. So let's just do a little bit. I was going to do this part at the end to only uh, spice up the class with this, uh, with this, uh, with this house, something about the base. I I wanted to do that, but okay, we spent the time now. That's good. Okay, so we talked a little bit about that. Um, but now I want to talk a little bit about the parsha of the Pinchas and to see, you know, the power of teshuva. Really, what we see in today's parsha, how much teshuva is, how powerful teshuva is, you know, which also happens to be the uh, the Tanya portions that we're studying during these days. Now, in the portion of the Tanya, we're taught, we're studying now the Geras Hatshuva. That's the letter of Tshuva of the Alter Rebbe in the Tanya. So over there. You know, of course, he, dis- he discusses the um, the the level of teshuva, and uh, and you see, and he, he sees how how teshuva can you know you can sort of change around totally. And but Alter Rebbe discusses there that the word teshuva actually stands for tosh of hay. Uh, you're bringing back the hay. Teshuva means tosh of hay. You're bringing back the hay because you have yud k vav k. So you have the two hays in the name of Hashem. You have the, you have the uh, K law, which is called the upper K, which is connected to the Yud K. And then you have the K Tatod, you have the lower level of the K, which is connected to the Vav. And what happens is, when a person sins, then you sort of create a separation. So that the name of Hashem, of the Yud K, Vav K, is uh, sort of uh, blemished a little bit. There's a Pagam, there's a, uh, a tarnish over there, which causes a separation. The idea is to shuva is to bring back, you bring back that hey, whether the po- more powerful level of teshuva 
which can do even more, would be tshuva ilo, the higher level of tshuva, will bring back the K to the Yud, next to the Yud, and the lower level of tshuva, which will bring back the K to the Vav, so it will be the level of K. The Altarebi explains over there that the name of Hashem, Yud K, Vav K, is specifically connected to the Jewish people. When we talk about the names of Hashem, we have the Shem Hashem, Yud K, Vav K. We also have the Shem Elokim. Hashem Elokim, we find in the Chumash. Elokim is more associated with the angels, with the rest of creations. But the Jewish people specifically are connected to the name of Yud K, Vav K. That's why the Pasuk says, for example, Ki Hashem Amo, that his people are part of Hashem. What does it mean, the part of Hashem? The part of the name of Yud K, Vav K versus the angels, which are sometimes called Elohim. We find in the, in the Bnei Elohim, we find Elohim from the Parsha. They're called Elohim, like masters, powerful, because they're more associated with the name of Elohim. The Alter Rebbe explains the difference between the Shem Avai and Elohim in relationship by giving a metaphor. So for us to understand, it says that by the human being, by, by people, which is in the soul, uh, talking about Adam, the first man, but he represents the soul of all Jewish people that followed. So by him it says, uh, even though he was Adam for everybody, for all creation being, but by him it says, God blew into his nostrils. He blew into his nostrils. But by everything else, by all others, it says, uh, um, it says, Vruach Piv It's with the air of his mouth. All of this. So there's a difference between the air of the mouth or it blew in, because he talked that there's a difference by a person. By for example, uh, when a person speaks, he doesn't have to invest so much energy into the speak into the word. There's just air that the person forms through his letters through his speech. But when you blow, you have to put in a lot more energy. That's why a person will get a lot quicker exhausted if you're trying to blow up some balloons. You know, you'll you'll uh, tire much more quickly than you will when you're speaking because you invest more energy. So, why is it more energy? Because it comes more from the inside, you're pushing out something deeper, from a deeper part. So just like a, from a person, when you're blowing, you're blowing it from a deeper part, and when you're speaking, it's only an external part, that's why there's not so much exertion when you're speaking. Similarly, is the difference between the level where we come from the name of Hashem and Elohim, that the Neshamas come from the name of Hashem, Yud Kevav Ke, so that's an inner, that's why for us, we shall blow in, because we're part of the Shem Avaya, whereas Yud Kevav Ke, we're the Neshama, with other ones that like him. So in this week's parasha, we talk about the level of Teshuvah over there. But in this week's parasha, we found a, a, an astounding and amazing thing. Um, we all know, um, what has it got to do with this parasha, really? That's, prob- that's part of the question. Uh, this parasha all of a sudden talks about the sons of Korah. Korach was a couple of weeks ago. Korach, Chukas, Bolok, Pinchas. So we're already three weeks ago. What are we all of a sudden talking about Korach over here? But here we're not talking about Korach. We're talking about the Bnei Korach, the sons of Korach. Now you should know, if you learn the Chumash, you know, it's all interrelated. You know, there's not like you just learn over here. So many verses ago we learned who Korach's sons were. He had three sons. And they mentioned them all by the name. And but then, you know, Korach instigated this whole fight against Moshe Rabbeinu. He was jealous, he was uh, complaining, he had, uh, uh, um, he wanted to be the uh, Kohen Godel, he wanted to take uh, Aaron's place, you know, he had all kinds of, of things. Moshe Rabbeinu warned him, Moshe Rabbeinu tried very much to to uh, stop it and appease them or try whatever he could, but he couldn't, he wasn't successful, they continued fighting. So Hashem made this outstanding, Moshe Rabbeinu said that Hashem should create, the earth should open up and should swallow. And it says that, uh, first of all, there was a fire that came out for those people that brought the incense. And then the Dasan and Aviram, and, uh, and then it says, Korach, and his entire family, everything that belonged to Korach, they were all, everything was swallowed into the ground. And, uh, but not his sons. Well, okay, so that's exactly the, the issue. Okay, good, okay. So, in this week's, so then, but in this week's Parsha, so what, what has it got to do with our Parsha over here? In our Parsha, we're counting the Jews. 
again, we're counting the Jews before they're going into Eretz Yisrael, because we're actually going to divide the land of Eretz Yisrael by the amount of people. And this is all a whole other uh, uh, class. You have to figure out exactly how the land of Israel was divided. It was done in an unusual way. Rashi spends a lot of time explaining to you how the land of Israel was divided. But they had this number of 600,000 and whatever number they came up with over there, and they divided the land to all these people. And then the verse basically uh, goes through the uh, the various different tribes and how much the numbers each tribe had. Because basically each tribe got a portion based on the amount of people that they had. It also wasn't exactly area, it was value. In other words, the value, they would buy, sometimes you got a large piece, Rashi says, which was which is a people, but it's not as valuable. So everything went by value. So all these, the, paper, the land was divided by all these people. That was, and it counts, tells you who they are. Then the Torah goes and tells you also how many of the Levites were there. So it goes through all the counts of the Levites. Okay, so then eventually, later on in the Parsha, it talks also about the sons of Korach. Now, uh, how do sons of Korach come into the picture if they all were swallowed in? So where did they come from? They were all swallowed in. So anyway, so uh, the Pasuk actually says, and we'll talk about also, the Pasuk seems to be also like a little bit out of place. So the Pasuk discusses about uh, um, um, the, the family of Reuven, when it talks, to, this is the beginning, before the Levites, it talks about the Reuven. So it talks about Datan and Aviron, Ba'on, Ben Pelas, those were the people that were the sons of Reuven, that got involved with, as we learned before, with Korach, with his whole fight against Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, against Aaron. So he, he instigated the leaders, and they all went to, to, to fight him. Okay, so um, over there, as a, to follow up with that, he says, Who does, these are those of Aviram, that instigated the people against Moshe Rabbeinu, and they were swallowed in, uh, in, the, in the ground uh, with them. And of course, Ein Ben Pelas, we know before already he was saved because his wife saved him because she basically saved him. She told him, listen, don't get involved. She told him, you know, if Moshe wins, you're out of a job. If Korach wins, you're out of a job. So <laughs> just stay, you can't win. So you, you know, no, no, but actually that's how she convinced him. But then she actually helped him because she didn't dress herself properly so that they couldn't come to the tent over there and she had him drunk so he wouldn't go there. So she had, uh, and that's why when they came, they came calling him, she uh, maneuvered it, she manipulated it that he shouldn't go there. So she saved him. But other than that, it seems like everybody else was swallowed in by the, uh, by the, uh, by the ground at that time. And it says everybody from Korach. But in our Parsha, the verse says, when it says everybody was swallowed, the whole thing, it says, that they didn't die. So, how do, how do we reconcile this? But it says before that everybody died. And here it says that they didn't die. So, those were the three sons uh, that Korach had. These three sons didn't die. Matter of fact, you know, in the Tehillim, we have several chapters that begins Bnei Korach, Lamnatzeach, Libnei Korach, Libnei Korach, Mizmer, Shir, some of the most profound songs are found in attributed to, um, to the sons of Korach. And um, it actually says that David HaMelech wrote the Tehillim, all the songs, based on the songs of ten and seven plus three sons of Korach, those are the ten. That's what the Talmud says. So the Talmud, those, the whole book of Tilim was authored by David HaMelech, by King David, based upon the sons of Korach. So what so are the, the seven? Huh? What are the seven? There are seven others. Odom and, and uh, Abraham, whatever the Gemara, I don't have to look it up. Moshe, huh? Well, whatever the, the songs over there is, but three of them were the sons of Korach. So that's the... Uh, so, uh, so the question is, so what happened? So how did they have? How could they make songs when they were all, all the family members? So it wasn't, wasn't only those only the children, and even if there was grandchildren, it seemed like you know everybody. And um, Rashi over here, this is in our portion. Rashi already mentioned it before, 
Uh, but Rashi, in our portion, in portion of Pinchas, when the verse says they didn't die, Rashi says, yeah, these people were actually in the beginning in this council. They advised, they were part of this whole thing. And when it came, though, at the time that they were fighting, then they had remorse in their house. They didn't, they hear Ruchuva Belibam. It's very, every word here, the Rebbe articulates and explains what every word means. So it's not just that they, they did Shuvah, they thought of Teshuvah in their hearts. And because of that, there was a place, a high place in the Gehenom, in hell, basically. There was a high place over there. Most of the people are, I guess, in the pot in Gehenom. <laughs> you know, but they were a high place up there, and they sat there. That's where they sat. Now, again, there's a whole lot of discussion over here, but it's uh, we're out of time for the whole discussion over here. But uh, the Rebbe, uh, uh, the Rebbe learns at the end of many of the commentaries that they didn't sit there forever because. Uh, we're talking in our portion. It's not just that they made the songs. Maybe you can say they made the songs while they were sitting there somehow. The songs and, you know, what happened? Maybe they're still sitting there. No. But the Rabbi learns that they sat there for a while and then there were families because you had a whole bunch of families over here. So uh, when they appeared? At some point, they, um, they came out of the ground. You know, they were, it was like a, they came out at some point. Okay. It's hard to know. I mean... The story, the story with Kairach took place in the beginning when they started in the desert in the second year over there when they were of the exodus of, of Egypt. This is what we're learning now in the portion of Pinchas is taking place almost going into Israel 40 years later. So somewhere in between the 40 years they came out, they were just there for, for some time. It looks like that they needed to go out pretty early so that they can have families because we're talking about in this parsha Mishpachas HaKorche, we're talking about the family of Korche here. And, and what the Rebbe basically says is that uh, the Rashi is, is very deliberate by saying um, they thought of Teshuvah to, to, to basically point out that they had a certain level of guilt because why do we associate them together with the other ones that died like with the Dosan uh, Viram? So um, as far as... Um, as the people saw, they were part of they were part of the whole the whole crowd, because in their heart they maybe uh, disagreed. In the heart they did shua, but that was only that Hashem knows what in their heart. But on the open, sometimes you know it explains why they needed to be punished. They needed to go in because, as far as everybody is concerned, they were part of it. Matter of fact, the Rebbe learns the word Tehillah, not just in the beginning, they started it. Maybe even they advised Korach, they instigated Dvorah Korach himself. They were, they led this, it's even possible, the Rebbe learns the word Tehillah, the Rashi says there. But, yet, they hear her tshuva. They did tshuva at the end, at the time of the Machlokah. So, they could reappear or be established after all those people that were there at the time were no longer there. So now they can come back well, because... When did they did their Hiroshima? When they were in the earth? No, no. Shasa Machloikas, on the time when they were Machloikas. And, uh, and they did Shuva. And then they got a place, and then from there, later on, they came out. I mean, this is some of the commentaries. The Medrash says, some of the commentaries said that they came out. Other people said that they stayed there. Other people say it was their grandchildren. The Rebbe doesn't disagree. I mean, but even if it was grandchildren, how did discussion. they come out? How did they, if the grandchildren went in? No, maybe they didn't go in, or maybe it was that, but that does not include them. So there's a lot of different options here. But I just want to, yeah? I heard that the righteous people, everyone goes into Gehenna. It's just a matter of how much time you're in there for. So it reminds me of being on this higher level. Oh, yeah. Perhaps the righteous are there. No. Well, it says that they didn't go in. It says that they were on a, sitting on a place by themselves oh. and not part of it. But then were they swallowed up? Yeah. But you said they were inside, but on a very high On the top, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm like sitting on a, yeah, they, on a ledge. Yeah, 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 on a ledge. On a ledge. I mean, we're talking about souls here. We're talking about spiritual. On a ledge. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good question, actually. Here we're talking about physically with their bodies because they were swallowed with their bodies. So what does it mean they were in Gehenna? Does it mean what? Their, their physical bodies were in Gehenna? Or their souls in Gehenna? Okay, that's another, that's another question. But I just want to bring out the thought that it brings out of here. But the Rebbe says, what's the, what's the lesson from all this? Take a look. I mean, look how, you know, how guilty these people were. I mean, technically they started out and they were uh, in India and they were swallowed in. And, and yet, because of they had this hero chuva, because they had the uh, it could change somebody around from one extreme to the other being and they uh, and uh, being even in a level which they caused other people to sin because they weren't there and the other thing and yet and even the fact that their teshuva was not really an open teshuva because it was just in their heart uh, so and the Rebbe argues that maybe maybe they didn't have the courage to come out openly Mm-hmm. Even that's what was only the heart. They felt bad. They did shuba, but they didn't. Yeah, because how could they, they stand up to their father and every, everybody else over there? Uh, so we say, but in the merit of that shuba thought, they escaped. They escaped from the punishment that came for the community of Kurdish. Uh And while there, uh, they were sort of sitting on the ledge or sitting wherever they were. They were sitting in pieces, some of them, and. At the end, they ended up saying Shira, the songs, which is part of the Sefer Tehillim. And some of them are uh, some of the powerful words in the Tehillim. So, Rebbe says, well, we can understand also for the future redemption, that the Rambam says that at the end we'll do Teshuva. And then as soon as we do Teshuva, we're going to be redeemed. So, uh, Rebbe says, already after all these long exile, so much Torah and mitzvahs, with so much mysterious nefesh, so much sacrifice during this long exile. It's enough for Yidin just to have a thought for tshuva to bring immediately the redemption of the Yidin and bringing down from the Pesach over there through the true and complete redemption of Mashiach Tzidkenu. Yeah. Amen.